Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to take them and turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, as we continue our series through the book of Colossians that we've titled Jesus, First Place in Everything. Colossians chapter 1. We'll pick it up where we left off from last week and we'll begin reading in verse 15. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Jesus, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him, if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Jesus is the most wonderful person you could ever know. And this passage is one of the big reasons why he's the most wonderful person you could ever know. If you've if you've lost the wonder of who Jesus is, or maybe you've, you've never even really had a wonder capture your heart for who Jesus is, then you're in the right place. Because Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23 is exactly where you want to be if that wonder for Jesus has not before gripped your heart, or maybe even now isn't gripping your heart. Jesus is wonderful. And because of that, like our series is titled, He Deserves First Place in Everything. So we ask ourselves maybe this question as we look at our hearts. Well, what causes me to lose the wonder? Why isn't this, this wonderful Jesus, why, is, why isn't my heart gripped and captured by who Jesus is? Maybe you'd ask, where has the wonder gone in my own life or in my own heart? I think one answer to that question is that I think it's just we tend to think of ourselves far too highly. We tend to think of ourselves far too highly. And this is, this is illustrated even by um, um, our, our recent trip to Mars. And I say our, I mean our, I mean some robot that they shipped up there. This is illustrated that way because the name, if you remember, the name of the rover that's up there right now, its name is Perseverance. Now, the whole backstory to the, the name Perseverance was this idea that mankind is unstoppable. This whole idea that mankind will persevere through anything that comes our way, that it'll be, that we have evolved in such a way that we can handle anything at all. And that's really the foundation of, of human thinking, isn't it? I mean, we, we, just, we think of ourselves so great that we're going we're gonna to persevere through everything. We're going to persevere into the future. And that's our downfall. And that's our downfall. We think we are the most wonderful beings 
ever to exist. We build our relationships trying to convince people that we're the most wonderful being ever to exist. We go into job interviews trying to convince this employer that we are the most wonderful beings ever to exist. We meet friends and meet people and we're thinking of our minds, I hope I don't do anything that makes me seem less wonderful than I think I am. One of the most important passages in the New Testament on who Jesus is 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 the passage we just read. Interestingly enough, verses 15 through 20, it's a hymn. This is one of the, maybe the oldest recorded hymns we have from the New Testament time. We don't know who wrote it. Could have been Paul. But nonetheless, it was, it was a hymn, a song, used in the church to make sure the doctrinal things and the, and the right teaching about Christ was taking place. And this was an easy way to remember these things of who Christ is. Now, remember why Paul is writing this letter. Paul is writing this letter for this very reason, that Jesus would have first place in everything. That he is preeminent. He is supreme. That he is worthy of having first place. And so that's out of this, Paul is, is, is right in the face of all the false teaching that's going on. He's saying, listen, Jesus is better. Jesus is the most wonderful person you could ever meet. You could ever know. He's the most wonderful being. If you're here this morning, I want to introduce you to him. But this morning, we're going to look at four reasons Kind of going along with our, with, our, with our theme here, four reasons why Jesus should have first place and why that makes him the most wonderful person you could ever know. Four reasons why Jesus should have first place and why this makes him the most wonderful person you could ever know. Isn't Jesus, my Lord, wonderful? Some of you would, maybe the, you started singing the old hymn in your head. Four reasons why Jesus should have first place in everything and why that makes him the most wonderful person you could ever know. Let's dive right in. Number one. Number one, he is the manifestation of God. He is the manifestation of God there in verse 15. Now, the Greek word for image is uh, icon, which is where we get our word icon. Uh, It's the idea there of of, uh, representation. It's it's a picture. It's a statue. It was used uh, in those days to refer to the image of of Caesar's, uh, Caesar's image on a coin, Jesus is the exact representation of God. We get this over in Hebrews chapter 1 as well. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says, He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. John 1.18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's right, who is at the Father's side. He, Jesus, has made him known. That's why... Jesus should have first place. Jesus, Jesus is the ultimate manifestation of who God is. He is the one who makes the invisible God known to us so that we can see who God is. Now you can see God's existence, you can see God's power, and you can see God's wisdom in creation. Romans chapter 1 makes that clear. Psalm 19 makes it clear as well. But only in Jesus can you see perfectly the very essence of God. So he is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn of all creation. This does not mean, as as Jehovah's Witnesses would teach us, that Jesus is a created being. That's not what this is teaching. It's not firstborn as in that he is a created being, but the word firstborn actually speaks of rank or origin. And we see this even in Psalm chapter 89, verse 27. Notice what it says here. I will make him the firstborn, what? The highest of the kings of the earth. 
So the firstborn is not necessarily the one who was born first, because even speaking of Solomon in this passage, Solomon wasn't the firstborn of David, but he was the one who had the highest rank and the one who would continue on the kingly line. Same, the same goes with Jesus. Jesus is not a created being. He's of first importance. There is no other more important than Jesus, which is why he must have first place. Now, you might be fascinated with Jesus. That's just simply not enough. He must have first place. We must believe on him as Lord and Savior. And there might be some in here today who are, they're fascinated with him. But really, your hope and your trust and your life is wrapped up in a career. Maybe you're really fascinated with Jesus, but you've got more hope and your life is found in pleasure. Maybe you're fascinated with Jesus, but you're really just wrapped up in making money. Maybe you're fascinated in Jesus, but you're more concerned about making sure your kids turn out right. Whatever it might be, a fascination with Jesus Christ isn't where things stop, but it's making him your Lord. It's giving him first place. It's giving him supremacy in all things, including your life. Now, there's an endless argument going on uh, in the sports world about who's the greatest NBA basketball player of all time. There are endless arguments in the sports world over which college football team from what year is the greatest football team of all time. I won't make any comments, being from Nebraska. Um, It's endless. On and on it goes. But when it comes to Jesus Christ, when it comes to everything, regardless of who you are, what it is, what you're talking about, Jesus has first place. Because the same thing goes on in our minds every single day. You may not be conscious of it, but we are making every single decision, every moment, based on who we believe Jesus really is. Whether you're saved or unsaved. Everything that filters through your mind, the decisions you make, is really rooted in, is Jesus the supreme being? Does he have supremacy? Does he have first place? He's the manifestation of God. And now, if you, reading this, you might think back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Remember, it talks about us being made in the image of God. Now, we are made in accordance to the image of God, but only Jesus is the image of God. We are not the image of God. I am not the image of God. Mankind, not the image of God. Adam and Eve were to represent the image of God. You remember in the garden, but they failed miserably. You and I are to represent the image of God, but we fail miserably. We're just simply not like God. We have intellect, emotion, and will. We can, we can think, we can feel, we can make decisions, yes. But morally, we are not like God. We're very sinful. We're not like God essentially either, in that we don't possess omnipotence, all power, all knowledge, all presence, those sort of things. Only Jesus possesses those things. But we are created in his image. We spend so much time trying to create a good image, don't we? We spend so much time trying to make, a, make, make other people think we, are, we look good. And we'll do just about anything to make sure we've got a good image, regardless of what's actually going on in our lives or going on on the inside. We'll dress nice, we'll talk nice, we'll smile nice, whatever it has to be to make sure our image isn't really the image that's on the inside. Many of us have has experienced uh, what I call the, the car park miracle. It's that moment when you park the car in the church parking lot 
and this holy family emerges from the car. Even though for the last 10 minutes on the ride to church, it's been filled with unholy bickering the entire way. But there's something about putting that car in park in the church parking lot that just, boom, holiness. And I'm not the only one. Good. I, thought for, I wasn't sure when I mentioned that if I'd be the only one who ever experienced that or not. But it's, that's it, right? It's time to put on our Sunday image. And we long to have this glorious image, but we have so failed. We have so failed. Jesus, however, succeeded. He is the image of God. He is God in human flesh. And he shows us the Father perfectly. He is God. And so we pursue by his grace and through his spirit to be conformed to his image. And we don't have to try to fool anybody. He is the manifestation of God. Secondly, he's the creator of all things. This is the second reason why Jesus should have first place and why this makes him the most wonderful person you could ever know. One, he's the manifestation of God. And secondly, he's the creator of all things. Hebrews chapter 3, again, is a, is a good parallel passage to this. I would draw your attention to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. There's that link. Jesus, more worthy. Just like someone who builds a house is worthy of more honor than the house itself. And here it's saying the builder of all things is God. That's Jesus. All things were created by him, through him, for him. He created all things. And, you know, verse 16 gives us what those things are. Heaven, on, heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. That's the way the Bible refers to those in the spiritual realm. So the angelic beings, the demons. Jesus is in complete control. Everything, was, everything that has been created was created by him without exception. John chapter 1, maybe you're thinking of that verse. John chapter 1, the first few verses there is another great passage. All things were created by him without exception. All things are under his command without exception. All things are subject to him. You remember when Jesus was, was on this earth, we read in the Gospels, the different occasions in which he told the winds and the waves to be still and they listened. Now, some of my favorite words ever written in any song are in the hymn, Be Still My Soul. And here's what the last part of the, the second stanza says, if you're familiar with the hymn. Be still, my soul. The waves and winds still know his voice who ruled them while he dwelt below. I love that. There's not a gust of wind or a storm that can come right now at this very minute that wouldn't remember the voice that spoke to them 2,000 years ago when Jesus told them to be still. There's not a raindrop that can fall at any moment that Jesus could tell to stop and it wouldn't stop in midair. He is the creator of all things. All things are under his authority. Let's, let's make things more personal as we talk about be still my soul. When you think of his command over the winds and the waves and the seas and all things, a still soul comes from a supreme savior. As if to say, if Jesus is not supreme, if he, is not, he doesn't outrank all things, what hope do you have? What hope do we have in sorrow? 
Nothing is too hard for God, Jeremiah 32, 27. All the stars, Isaiah chapter 40, verse uh, 26 says, all the stars are named and numbered, all of them. All things were created by him. They're created through him. They're created for him. He is the ultimate goal. We get that in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 10. He outranks all things. He outranks all angels, all authorities, all positions, all people, all philosophies, all traditions, all religions, all things. He outranks them all. And the false teaching at Colossae would say, you don't need Jesus. Jesus, they would believe matter was evil. So to say that God came in human flesh was to say like God took on this evil matter and is therefore evil. So to answer for this, they say Jesus didn't really come in human flesh. He's not really a man. He's just like a lesser emanation of God. But he's not the real thing. And Jesus could be really great for you, like in addition to some other stuff. But if all you have for Jesus for your spiritual life, then they would say you're lacking. It's not enough. And Jesus would say, and Paul would say, and Colossians tells us that he is enough. He is the only one who matters. He is first place. He's not a lesser emanation of God, but he is the real thing. He is the creator of all things, and he sustains all things. Verse 18, uh, verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now think about that. All things hold together. And we mentioned that even in the song that we sing. It's estimated that you have around 30 trillion cells in your body. Now, those, we have different types of cells in our body. But inside each of your cells is a little package of DNA called chromosomes. And those chromosomes basically determine who you are, what you look like. It's your DNA. It's your code. It's your genetic code. Now, every single cell in your body has the exact same genetic code. But... They're, they're, they're activated in different ways based on different parts of your bodies. So all the chromosomes that you have are in every single cell. But certain chromosomes are activated for your brain that aren't activated for your liver because your brain has to do something your liver doesn't. And so God created it in such a way that even, even though every single cell in your body has the exact same genetic code in it, only certain ones are activated based on whether it's a kidney or an eye or a brain because you, those are, have different functions. 30 trillion cells. Those cells are made of atoms. You keep breaking things apart, you get down to an atom. Your, your body has seven octillion atoms. That's how your body's made up. That's seven followed by 27 zeros. And we get to Acts chapter 17, verse 28. And it says, in him we live and move and have our being. No kidding. Every single one, every cell, every atom held together by Jesus Christ. Every cell that dies, every cell that mutates. And when a cell mutates, we normally get older bodies. We get sick. We get deficiency. Every single one sustained and upheld by Jesus Christ. No stars are missing, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 26. The universe is upheld. Gravity works. Planets orbit because Jesus sustains them. And this life only makes sense with Jesus' first place. And this is the second reason why Jesus should have first place in your life and what makes him the most wonderful person you could ever know. Number three. Number three. Number one, the first reason why Jesus should have first place in everything. Number one, he is the manifestation of God. Number two, he is the creator of all things. And number three, 
He is the head of the church. That might seem a little odd. We're talking about creation. We're talking about heaven and earth. We're talking about visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, all these things, creation, how all things hold together. And then he brings in the church. As if to say, don't miss this great and glorious Jesus. Don't miss who he is to the church. He is the head of the church. He's the founder. That's what the word head means. He's the originator. This isn't saying that Jesus is like some CEO in charge of a company. It's saying he's the life-giving sustenance of an organism. He gives it life and breath and movement to a living organism that we call the church. He's the one in charge. He's the one who gives it life. Now, many today see the church as stuffy and outdated. And maybe there's even many in here today who would even be embarrassed to say that you go to church. Maybe it's one of those things you hope your friends don't ask you about or hope people don't find out. But if you rightly understand Jesus Christ and you have eyes to see how wonderful he is, then the local church becomes a treasure. I care not that your names are on the membership list just so you can have some sort of title. You know, join the local church because membership is important, but it's not important just because it's important. It's important because who Jesus Christ is, because he is the head of the body. And we say Jesus is the head of the whole local church. That means all believers everywhere in all the world, Jesus is the head. And so for me, for me to live in this ultimate local, not local, this ultimate body of people who are Christians, the best way for me to do that is to build the local church, to serve Christ in the local church, so that there's an intimate relationship that Jesus has with his church. The church has meaning. Calvary Baptist Church has meaning and significance and is a treasure, not because of who we are, but because we come this morning and we worship Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. No believer on earth is the head of the church. All believers are part of the body. They don't give life to the body. They don't give it direction. That is reserved for Jesus Christ alone. Now, what sort of unity, what sort of unity should we experience here knowing that Jesus Christ is the head? If you're visiting with us or you're not very familiar with church, I am not the head of this church. Privileged to be its pastor and its shepherd and to lead this church as an under-shepherd of Jesus Christ. But even still, I'm not, I'm not the secondary head or anything like that. You know, this isn't some like weird alien thing with multiple heads. There's one head, it's Jesus Christ. There's no Pope, no nothing else that sits up there with it. It's Jesus. The sustenance Calvary Baptist Church needs comes from Christ. The direction this church needs to go comes from Christ. The unity this church should experience comes through Christ. He is the founder. He is the resurrection and the life. Notice as we keep going through in verse 18. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. He's the one who gives us life. John 11, Jesus would say, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. 
And we have this picture of the resurrection. What does this mean? This means that Jesus is ruling in this life and he's also going to rule in the life to come. For all those who have trusted in him will be united with Christ in perfect unity in heaven. Death and sin and suffering will be around no more. And if you're not a Christian, that's not for you, but it can be. The local church is about him. What would make us so ashamed of being here? What would make us so ashamed of the gospel if this is the Jesus we're talking about? If someone asked you why you go to church, what would you say? Would you be somewhat embarrassed because they probably think that you committed to following some religious code? That you just kind of jumped into this religious organization and, you know, we've all agreed to follow a certain religious code, you know, spoken and unspoken. Try not to step on each other's toes, you know, but we're just kind of, why do I go to church? I don't know. I hope they don't think I'm just some crazy kook who's just part of some, you know, weird organization. Why, Why do you go to church? Now, if someone asks you that, how about this? I go to church to worship the most wonderful person ever to exist. Can I tell you about him? Why do you go to church? You're unsafe, you're unsafe family. Why do you go to church? What is this big church thing? I go to church to worship the most wonderful person ever to exist. He gives me life. He gives me hope. He gives me peace with God. And he is preeminent which brings us to the theme of this entire book found at the end of verse 18 that in everything he might be preeminent now the fact is pastor matt even prayed this jesus is first place he is first place you're not going to kick him off that but does that have any bearing on your life does this show up in your life Does it have any bearing on this church? May Christ have first place in your life. May he have first place in this church. I don't want tradition or trendiness to rule this church or your life or my life. May Christ have first place in our lives. May all our spiritual nourishment and fulfillment be found in him who is the head of the church. The fourth reason why Jesus should have first place in everything. Number one, he is the manifestation of God. Number two, he is the creator of all things. Number three, he is the head of the church. Number four, he is the hope of the lost. And this is what we get in verses 19 through 23. He is the hope of the lost. It says here that in the fullness, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So here again, it's similar to what we just talked about in, back in verse 15. False teachers invite to have some sort of spiritual experience, spiritual fullness apart from Christ. And Paul is saying all that is to be known of your spiritual experience should be found in him. In Christ is the fullness of God. This is what theologians call the pleroma. Because the Greek word for fullness is pleroma. So just the idea there that, that no one knows the Son, like Luke 10.22 says, no one knows the Son except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son. So in Christ is the fullness of God. Oh, that we would see the meekness of Christ in this. The fullness of God in a crying baby. 
the fullness of God in a little boy that has to use the bathroom. The fullness of God in a carpenter. The fullness of God in a tried, convicted, crucified man. Here is our God. Here's how we come to worship on Sunday mornings. He is the hope for sinners. But before he's the hope for sinners, there's, there's in, something interesting here in verses 19 and 20. Because he says, he wants to rec- verse 20, he wants to reconcile all things to himself, whether on earth or in heaven. So his, his de- the death of Jesus Christ accomplished reconciliation not only for sinners, but also for creation. Did you know that? The death, the death of Jesus Christ did more than provide a way for sinners to be reconciled to God, but also creation to be reconciled to God. The death of Christ was meant to provide a way for creation to be brought back from the curse. We have uh, Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22, where it says, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. In hope, notice this, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain what? Obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The violent, bloody death of Jesus Christ provides hope for creation that one day will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Most significantly, it provides hope for sinners. The death of Jesus Christ does not guarantee that every person will be delivered from the wrath to come. Notice what it says in verse 21. It says, you who were once alienated and hostile in mind. The alienated and the hostile towards God must come willingly to Jesus Christ and trust him as their Lord. Every knee will bow to Jesus Christ. Every, that's what Philippians tells us. Every knee will bow to Jesus Christ. The question is, will you do it willingly now or do it unwillingly later? The unwilling will be condemned to eternal punishment in hell. But the willing are forgiven of their hostility and brought into friendship with God. Richard Chin commenting on this passage, he says, Every person will either enjoy reconciling forgiveness from Jesus or face reconciling judgment from Jesus. Which will it be for you? The violent, bloody death of Jesus Christ can cancel all the record of your debt of sin that stands against you before God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 talks about Jesus making a new creation. It talks about being reconciled to God. It's about Jesus taking your evil heart and making it, making it into a heart that is soft and has love for God through Jesus Christ. You can be God's friend. The section ends with verse 23. I want to jump there as we close things out here. So you, sinner, can be reconciled to God through the flesh and through the death of Jesus Christ. The reason for this in verse 22 is to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Verse 23, if indeed you continue in the faith. Now this section gives us a very clear warning and one we ought to heed and listen to. Those who are really saved will persevere. Those who are really saved will 
persevere by God's grace and through the Holy Spirit. But be warned from this passage and be warned from the very words of Jesus himself from Matthew chapter 7. On that day, Jesus says, many will come to me and say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons? Didn't we go to church? Didn't we go to do mighty works? Didn't I help people in your name? Do all these things. And I will declare to them, Jesus says, I never knew you. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness, you workers of iniquity. Be warned. It's by God's grace we persevere, but we are held responsible to continue to believe and to trust. You say, well, can I lose my salvation? The answer is no. The answer is no. The question is always, what are you believing right now to give you forgiveness and eternal life? And I think so often we can, we can, get, we can get so out of whack because, it, because we try to impress others. It's of little importance who you are in the sight of others. What matters is who you are in the sight of God. So between you and God in your heart and God's heart, who are you? Where do you stand? Do you stand forgiven because you know Jesus and you've, you've placed your faith in Jesus as your Savior and Lord in his resurrection? Or do you stand as someone who is alienated and hostile before him because you've never trusted him as your Savior? Where do you stand? So the question is, Does Jesus really have first place in your life? Has your sin been canceled? Are you truly God's friend? If Jesus is none of these things, there would be no reason to call on him in times of sorrow. If Jesus is is none of these things, there would be, there'd be, there'd be no reason to hope in a better life to come. If Jesus was none of these things, there would, there would be no reason to w- risk the awkwardness and tell people that they should turn to him and place their faith in him. If Jesus is none of these things, there would be no hope and no reason to cling to him with the incoming persecution. As hostility grows towards Christ and his church more and more and more seemingly each day, So does Jesus really have first place in your life? Have your sins really been canceled? Are you truly God's friend? These are the four reasons why Jesus should have first place in everything, and it's what makes him the most wonderful person you could ever know. And I trust you know him. He is the very manifestation of God. He is the creator of all things. He is the head of the church, and he is the only hope for those who are lost. May he have first place in everything we do. Let's pray. Our Father, that's what we pray, that you would so capture our hearts with wonder because of who Jesus is. May he have preeminence, may he have first place in all things, in our lives, in this church. There's nothing better. He's better than every addiction. He's better than every facade we can put on. He's better than any person we could know, any job we could ever have. He's better than any amount of money we could ever ground you up. Lord, he's better. And so, Lord, may he have first place in our hearts. And, Lord, that's what we want to do now as we come to the, the communion table. We want to be reminded of who this Jesus is, and we want him to have first place. So be with us now, even as we remember this wonderful grace towards us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
We're going to transition just right into our time around the Lord's table. And again, I would just, I would just mention to you that uh, we do have these, uh, these cups. If you don't have one, feel free to go out and get one. Otherwise, um, you can start separating them. Again, there's the, the bread is on top with its own film pullback, and then the juice has another one as well. So um, you can separate those two. We'll take the bread first and then the juice. But just a couple words as we come to the communion table. The first thing is, this, this does not save you. This does not give you any spiritual favor before God. This is not a way to try to appease God's wrath. It has, it's, none of, it's none of those things. This is a picture that Jesus left with us as a way for us to remember his, his perfect life, his death for us. That he took our place on the cross so we could have our sins forgiven. And also, this is for Christians. So if you're not a Christian, don't take it. Better yet, be saved and then take it. So if you're not a Christian, no one's going to judge you or anything like that. But this is for believers. Paul tells us that he delivered to us what he received from Jesus. He says, when they came together, Jesus had taken the bread. This is the unleavened bread. This represents not only the the perfect sacrifice, but also his perfect body. He was sinless. He was without leaven. And they took it, and the juice represents, it says, the new covenant in my blood, the forgiveness that is established because Jesus died for us. There is a warning in here, though. It says, let a person examine himself, and then so eat the bread and drink of the cup. So we're going to take just a few brief moments to silently pray, to confess any known sin, And ask God to forgive the unknown sin that may be unknown to you or you're blind to. And then it says we can come rejoicing that we can rest in the fact that Jesus has forgiven us. So let's take just a brief moment to pray.